Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. We'll start out now with good news and simple good advice. How about hugging a special anxiety pillow? When we're children, we usually have our whoopee or some kind of toy. I remember the one I had uh, when I grew up and looked at it. I was like, oh, my God, that thing is creepy. But at the time, I loved it. It was sort of uh, attempting to be a kitten, but uh, definitely moving into the uncanny valley from an adolescent's perspective. But researchers have developed a huggable cushion-like device that mechanically stimulates breathing. And uh, preliminary evidence suggests that it could help reduce anxiety. The researchers used students' pre-math exam anxiety as their experimental model, but there's no reason that we couldn't use this for other types of anxiety. Now, of course, we have drugs and psychotherapy for anxiety disorders, and certainly I'd say one of the side effects of the last couple of years has been an increase in generalized anxiety. But, you know, therapy is expensive when you can get it because, of course, the demand has gone up. Medications can be uh, cause drug dependence and they may have unaffected, uh, unwanted side effects. So it would be lovely if we had some at-home anxiety aids that could complement treatments and maybe help people benefiting, uh, experiencing t- temporary anxiety. So there's a small growing body of research looking at what we can do with touch-based devices. There's a type of wearable called a touch point. There's, uh, a, new, there's a new interactive robot called Paro the Seal that shows promise. Researchers, as I said, at, MA, uh, at uh, the University of Bristol in UK, under the leadership of Alice Haynes, uh, we're looking at a new touch-based device. So they built several prototypes, and they thought, well, you know, what? let's problem solve. What could we use? Well, we could use breathing, slow, soft breathing. We could use purring. We could use a heartbeat. You remember, you know, you bring the puppy home, and you wrap a towel around the ticking clock, and that sort of comforts the puppy. And they took each of these prototypes, and they put them into a soft, huggable cushion that was meant to be intuitive and inviting. And then focused group testers said that the breathing cushion was the most pleasant and calming. So they went at this, they developed this into a larger mechanical cushion. And then they tested it on 129 volunteers involving mathematics tests using pre and post test questionnaires. They found that students who used the device were less anxious pre-test than those who didn't. And the experiment also compared the breathing cushion to a guided meditation and found that they were both equally uh, effective at easing anxiety. The breathable cushion could be used, therefore, to reduce anxiety, maybe anticipating exams, maybe when you (laughs) come home after taking it. But now they're going to refine the cushion and start testing it in people's homes. And they want to look at measuring physiological response to the device in people, for example, not just a questionnaire, but changes in their heart rate or their breathing patterns in order to figure out what the particular mechanisms might be active causing the device to 
ease anxiety. The authors added to their presentation, we were excited to find that holding the breathing cushion without any guidance produced a similar effect on anxiety as students uh, with a meditation practice. The ability of this device to be used intuitively opens it up to wider audiences for accessible anxiety relief. Now, I'm going to just postulate because I do my relaxation work using breath work and there's a broad history in both Indian and Chinese traditional medicine of controlling the breath. That's particularly important, obviously, in yoga, which comes from the Indian subcontinent. But the point here is that controlling the breath, being aware of the breath, is a wonderful way to help yourself calm down. And a I think that possibly what we're getting with this breathing cushion is entrainment, not biofeedback, but entrainment so that you start to, you feel the device breathing against your chest and you start to breathe with the device. This breathing, and this is scientifically established, slow, regular breathing will tend to cause the brain waves to enter into a more regular, less erratic state and off we go. It's going to be very interesting to see if this is uh, effective and maybe coming to a uh, store near you uh, or possibly to your website telling you, uh, to your uh, phone or your email telling you all about the anxiety pillow. And uh, I want mine to be pink. Just putting that out there too as a sort of informal focus group. I promised you good news, and I'm going to go ahead and follow through with that uh, with some science stories about things coming on the horizon that look very promising for alleviating, well, human suffering. We'll start out with infertility, which strikes about 15% of couples, and in at least half of those cases, male fertility factors are a contributing cause. In a pair of world firsts, Scientists at the University of British Columbia have 3D printed human testicular cells and they've begun identifying promising ways to get these stem cells to actually start producing sperm. They're not all the way there yet, but this is going to be really major if they can pull it off. So what they what they do is they 3D the uh, the cells into a very specific structure that imitates the seminiferous tubules. The sperm grow up in this sort of spaghetti of hollow tubes, and the hollow tubes themselves, the seminiferous tubules, provide supporting chemicals and otherwise nourish the the newly forming sperm. In the most severe form of male infertility, which is called non-obstructive azoospermia, no sperm is actually found in the ejaculate because there's no sperm production within these structures. So these are the people that Dr. Finnegan's team is hoping to help. First, they perform a biopsy to collect stem cells from the testicles of a patient living with this non-obstructive azoospermia. They then grow the cells and 3D print them onto a Petri dish that's filled with hollow tubular structures resembling the sperm-building seminiferous tubules. Now, this is in embryology. There's multiple things that can tell a stem cell what to do. Sometimes it's pressure, stretching, 
Sometimes it's a gradient of a chemical. Sometimes it's simply the shape that it finds itself in. And so because these cells are being printed into a curve, that provides them a clue that they're going to develop into the lining of seminiferous tubules. And what they found was 12 days after printing onto this Petri dish, the cells had survived and they had matured into several of the specialized cells that you would expect to find in the seminiferous tubules. And they were showing lots of production of the materials that are important for the maintenance of stem of uh, spermatogonia stem, stem cells. So early signs of being able to produce sperm, very promising. And these cells are beginning to differentiate now comes the real challenge. The team has to coach the printed cells into producing sperm. To do this, they'll work on exposing the cells to different nutrients and growth factors and fine-tune the structural arrangement to facilitate the cell-to-cell interaction. They've got to provide more triggers to shape what parts of the genetic software in these stem cells is activated so that they mature and, as we use in embryology, differentiate into the right type of cell. We're beginning to shed real new light on genetic and molecular mechanisms, and we're learning that, according to Dr. Flanagan, there are as many different types of infertility as there are people. And so we are going to be taking a personalized precision medicine approach We take cells from the patient, understand what deficiencies and abnormalities are unique to them, and then 3D print and support the cells in ways that overcome those deficiencies. So a real individualized, targeted approach. And wow, that's pretty exciting. So we're going to go to our first uh, caller, and uh, that is uh, Sandy Reckenmacher, Reckenmacher, excuse me. Hello, Sandy, you're on the air. Hi. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. Yes. Hi, Dr. Don. No worries. Hi. Yeah. Great. I'm calling because um, actually I called a number of weeks ago about a uh, program that's coming up. It's an online intensive uh, 10-day immersion program just to improve people's health. And, and one might say, 10 days? How does that work? Well, um, this immersion program wants everybody to take it and that, who take it to focus on just eating more plants. And um, in 10 days, there, there are some people who have reduced cholesterol, lowered their blood pressure, uh, lost weight, uh, increased energy levels, sleep, sleep better, and prevented and reversed some of the chronic uh, disease conditions. And um, so the next question you might ask yourself, like, whoa, well, how do, how do you do that? Well, it's kind of tricky to, to make uh, some changes sometimes in something that we have uh, just been doing for a long time the same way over and over. And so this 10-day immersion is a community-based program, and it's offered um, through a Plant Pure Nation, uh, and it comes to Santa Cruz now. Um, and it's part of the 10-day online program where you're going to get education uh, and motivational videos. There's also three times that uh, here locally – uh, the team here is going to support people by giving um, online like cooking demonstrations and question and answer periods. And also, another thing that's really, really important is to have some um, support. So how we do support in Santa Cruz is that uh, Beth Love, she's the founder of 
an organization called Eat for the Earth. And this nonprofit, she, through this nonprofit, she's found three local um, farms that will open up their um, community um, gathering place. And we're going to have some time to gather together to try out recipes, eat and taste the delicious foods that are possibilities. It's a chance for people to meet other people doing the same thing, ask questions, how do you do this, why do you do that, what do you think about this. And it's pretty exciting because we need support when we go, you know, step into something right. new. Nothing is more supportive than having a peer group that's doing the same thing. And that's also yeah. true if you're making all the wrong choices. If you have a peer group <laughs> making those choices, it tends to reinforce bad choices. No reason why it couldn't work in the opposite direction. And I'm so glad to hear that you're going to have people meeting in person because I believe yeah. that we are all starved for contact and particularly yeah. contact with, with people who have an interest in healthy uh, behaviors because we could all use a few more of those. Yeah, it's true. Well, tell us how people can learn more about the program and how they can possibly sign up. Would you uh, give us that information, please? Yeah. Uh, So paper and pencil ready. Um, I'm going to give you my phone number, and it is 831-325-3811. That's one way to connect. The other one would be if you went to the website, eatforthearth.org. And then, uh, then you come to the website and there's these little buttons across the top menu and you click on initiatives and you'll see community RX. That's what it's called, community RX. And there you can read more about it and you can register right there. After you register, um, it's good to, um, have a doctor you're working with because what we want to do to, um, see, uh, the benefits of this program is first to have a doctor um, perform some biometric um, tri- uh, tests, you know, like uh, check your blood sugar. Right, exactly, all the stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. blood pressure, yeah. Is this mandatory after, for people or optional? Um, it's part of the program. Yeah, I see. it's mandatory just because um, we want to see pre and post. I mean, it's mm-hmm. the whole thing is like where this program is saying in 10 days, look what can happen. So we want to document that. Sure. We want to make sure that people know pre and before and after what the results are. Are the physician's and, cost um, included in the, uh, in the cost of the program or, and what about no. people who don't have a regular doctor? Do you have someone who's okay. wet, willing to step forward and, uh, and help them? Okay. Um, well, let's see. So your first question was, um, uh, is you said is it a part of the uh, cost? No, it's not part of the cost. You need mm-hmm. to work with your own doctor. And some people already have these biometric tests if they've been to their doctor within the last ninety days, and that that counts. So if that's true, then you know you can use those. If not, you definitely need to see your doctor on two occasions, you know, before and then after when uh, the doctor will. Take again the um, Sandy. That's a little bit too. That's a little TMI. But my real question was: Do you have uh, doctors available who will help people who who don't have that kind of a relationship? Uh, there are many um, in our community. Yeah, um, we can find some. We can help people with that. Good. Um, Good. I, there's no problem with that. Um, the other thing is that this program right now is offered for either one hundred twenty-four dollars or one hundred fifty-four dollars, and the Higher prices means you're buying some meal starters with it, so you don't have to do that. Um, you're going to have two um, whole menu options that you can choose from. 
And then also, um, if you if that's too high for you, or if you want a scholarship, you can apply for a scholarship. And then also, the the, the most outrageous thing I think is that uh, organization in Watsonville, Salud para la gente, mm-hmm. is offering this for a greatly reduced price. So if you go through them, then they can help you with that post and uh, pre and post uh, biometrics. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, Salud para la gente is an excellent organization and provides yeah. healthcare services uh, all over the, for people all over the county, but uh, they have really made make a huge difference in uh, yeah. so, in and, southern Santa Cruz County. So, and also to want to uh, also add that the one the um, program in, uh, through Salud will totally be in Spanish, so it's for mm-hmm. also Spanish speakers, right? English speakers and Spanish speakers. So we're making it. We want to make it easy. We want to make it easy for the doctors that they don't have to do too much at all. It's up to the client after they're registered to um, enjoy the program and work with um, uh, people like me that are going to assist with the program and mm-hmm. here to guide people okay. through. Okay, Sandy, why don't you give out that phone number once again? Yeah, okay, that's my phone number, Sandy Reckenmacher, mm-hmm. and it's 831-325-3811. So either call me or go to eatfortheearth.org. Um menu button initiatives and then you'll see community rx you can find out more and then keep moving well thank you sandy for calling and reminding us about what sounds like a really excellent program uh why don't you give us a follow-up call and let us know how it went after uh, the program is done i I just need to um tell you i forgot to tell you the date so Mm -hmm. it starts on april 30th Mm -hmm. and um uh, that's the kickoff date and the um excuse me the register, registration by uh, April 14th, uh, so we can get all your supplies. What you're going to be getting is... Um, um, okay, I'm going to cut you I'm going to cut you off because I know uh, that's on the website. Uh, so oh, okay. thank you okay, very sure. much, and right. uh, have, a great, have a great program. I hope, every, I hope you all get right. full enrollment. Bye for now. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Don. You're welcome. Bye. Yeah, I love that this is focused on eating for the earth. I think we all need to do something for our mama. And uh, that would be the earth. So let's try to eat sustainably and live as sustainably as we can, at least as a ideal. Obviously, we'll never be perfect, but as close as we can get. Uh, now, moving back to science and cool new stuff, uh, researchers at MIT have made something extraordinarily cool. They have developed a acoustic fabric. What is that? Well, it's a fabric that converts audible sounds into electrical signals, which can then be transduced into other devices. They divine, Effectively, they designed a fabric that works like a microphone, converting sound first into mechanical vibrations and then into electrical uh, signals, pretty much the way our own ears hear. So, Exactly how do our ears work? Well, audible sound travels through air as slight pressure waves, basically um, compression and attenuation of the uh, atmosphere itself, like, you know, the way that the water is gathered by waves on the beach. Well, as these waves reach our ear, there's an exquisitely sensitive and complex-shaped three-dimensional organ. You may have heard of it. It's called the eardrum. And it uses a circular layer of fibers to translate those pressure waves into mechanical vibrations in a few bones. 
these vibrations travel through these hinged bones, which reduces their amplitude to the inner ear, a highly delicate structure where these uh, where this physical motion is again converted into uh, waves in a membrane, the cochlear membrane, and then via, via hair cells in the ear into electrical signals, which are then sent and processed, sent to and processed by the brain. So the researchers uh, wanted to reproduce that. Now, all fabrics, all fabrics vibrate in response to audible sounds, but these vibrations are on the scale of nanometers, too small to be sensed. So to capture these signals, the researchers first created a flexible fiber mat that, when woven into a fabric, bends with the fabric like seaweed on the ocean surface. This, by the way, is exactly how those hair cells in the cochlea work. They bend like seaweed, as, and that's how it is able to transduce it because that bending actually creates a nerve impulse. Well, the fiber, the fiber we're talking about was designed from a piezoelectric material. This is a material that produces an electrical signal when it's bent or mechanically deformed. It's how an old-fashioned crystal radio works. This provides the, a means for the fabric to convert sound vibrations into electrical signals. It can... Actually, the finished fabric is amazing. It can capture sounds ranging from decibel, like a quiet library, to heavy road traffic and determine the precise direction of sudden sounds like hand claps. When woven into a shirt's lining, the fabric can detect the wearer's heartbeat, and the fibers can also be made to generate sound, such as a recording of spoken words, that another fabric could actually detect. Wearing an acoustic garment. You might talk through it to answer phone calls and communicate with others, says uh, lead author of the paper that I'm quoting, Ye uh, Wei Yan, uh, who's a postdoc at MIT. He's now a, I guess he was a postdoc when the paper came out. He's now an assistant professor at the Nanyang Technological University in Singapore. So in addition, says Yan, the fabric can imperceptibly interface with the human skin, enabling wearers to monitor their heart and respiratory condition in a comfortable, continuous, real-time, and long-term manner. So they did a study where they wove, they they basically uh, attached the fiber. Let's see, I'm trying to find where they how they made it. It's really, that was really interesting. Uh but I'm not. They basically took this piezoelectric material, and then once they made it, they stretched it to make it very, very thin. And then they uh, used uh, they st- stretched it and applied it to uh, suspended to fiber to fiber, and basically wove it into the fiber. And they ended up with something about the consistency of a lightweight. Uh, z- a, a lightweight windbreaker jacket, so definitely something wearable. Uh, then they tested its sensitivity, and they played a sound through a speaker and attached it to a sheet of mylar, and then they looked at how the fiber generated and could measure the electrical current by picking it up off of the mylar. And the the performance is, a, is akin to a handheld microphone. And... 
one of the researchers took a panel of the shirt and a panel of the fabric and sewed it to the back of a shirt. And then the team stood behind the uh, person wearing the shirt and clapped their hands while standing at various angles. And the fabric was actually able, just like the, your two ears, to detect the angle of the sound within an accuracy quite amazing of one degree at a distance of nine meters away. So about 10 feet away, it could tell, is this coming from way over on the right, way over on the left, in the center, or somewhere in between. So they are envisioning that maybe this could turn into a kind of hearing aid for those with hearing loss that would help them tune, well, tune their hearing aid to the speaker in a noisy environment. So they could essentially select uh, the person that they were focusing on by facing them, and then all the noise in the surrounding area would be damped down. And that could be, and that would happen automatically. Right now, there are some hearing aid devices that will do that for you, but you need to mess with the phone interface to do the selectivity. And while that is a uh, an improvement on he- hearing aids that uh, previously just amplified everything, including background noise, it's this makes it involuntary. And I think could be whatever you are look facing is what you're going to hear, and when you turn away, you will stop hearing it or hear it less. Uh, could really be helpful in certain situations. That was what I'd wear at the party anyway. They also stitched a single fiber of this uh, material to the inner lining of a shirt right over the left chest and found it detected the heartbeat, and including uh, subtle variations in the heart sounds and murmurs. Uh, they see possibilities for incorporating the fabric into maternity wear to help monitor the fetal heartbeat and possibly with sufficient uh, sophisticated interpretive software, you might be able to detect early fetal distress during the last trimester of pregnancy. Uh, of course, it'll be a while before we've uh, knocked the bugs out of that one, but it could certainly be a benefit for people who have recurrent late miscarriages and they won't be having to go to the doctor every couple of days to do a non-stress test and just lie there on a table. They could walk around and do their usual stuff. That could be a very big uh, advantage. It's even hard to figure out what could happen with this, just like cell phones started out as phones and then someone added a camera, and then before we knew it, we, we had Blackberries and we were checking our emails, and now, essentially... We carry in our pockets a, a computer that is a hundred times more powerful than the one that took mankind to the moon, maybe a thousand times. So, wow, things have moved fast. It's hard to even imagine it where this material could go. You could put it in a spacecraft to, a, like, in the sail of a uh, solar collector to assess how much space dust is accumulating. You could embed it into a bridge where it could detect cracks or strains well before they could be detected by engineers. It could even be woven into a smart net to monitor fish in the ocean. It's it's a wide-open possibility of where this acoustic fabric could go in the next two decades. And, and obviously there are health uh, connections to this, which is why it's on this program. But also, you've got to admit, folks, this is a real gee whiz science thing that you just kind of have to step back and admire. We're going to go to our uh, next caller, and that is Curtis in Santa Cruz. Uh, Hello, Curtis. You're on the air. 
Hi, Dr. John. Thank you so much for taking my call, and I've been listening to you for decades, I think. But a uh, terrific program. I've learned so much. Oh, thank and you. I had, I had a specific question. I went to the doctor. I'm just on my way home right now. So I, I'm 70 years old right now. I've been pretty healthy most of my life. Uh, I've become more sedentary in the last several years, and uh, I'm struggling with the, the typical beer belly. Uh, it's not really bad, but it's embarrassing for me. But here's the thing. So I, was, I have asthma, and I thought it was uh, progressing into, uh, you know, the typical infection phase of something more than just allergy asthma. And I went to the doctor uh, with the PAMP, and uh, they saw me, and they gave me a chest X-ray. And uh, one of the, I just read uh, the narrative on the chest X-ray, and so they said, you know, viral pneumonia, and I'm going to take medicine for that. And uh, but in the mentioned something that I uh, 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 calcium in the aorta, and mm. I can't think of the actual technical term. That's all right. I brought this up with my. Uh, several years ago, before the COVID got going, and I, I said, I'd like to know what my calcium numbers are. I saw this program on PBS, and they explained it really well. And I realized that this is something that I need to pay attention to, especially because of my age. And uh, so what popped up for me today is it reminded me that I haven't pursued that. And one of the questions I have is, is this calcium buildup in the aorta uh, is it reversible or how do you manage that? I Nobody has really, I haven't really found it. There's probably a ton of information, but I don't have a lot of time to spend researching it. Mm-hmm. I have, a li- I was pre-med at one time. And, uh, <laughs> okay, well, Curtis, I, I got the I got the question. I'm going to go ahead and, yeah. and, you know, kind of walk through arterial calcification. And I'm yeah. going to first of all start with the fact that not everybody deposits calcium in their arteries. And the importance of this was first appreciated when we started investigating why certain people who had normal cholesterol and normal blood pressure had this strong family history of heart disease. And what we discovered was that you could inherit a tendency to deposit calcium in your arteries. And if you are that person, the coronary arteries will tend to develop a plaque that is more likely to rupture, which leads to the whole process that you know, causes the blood clot, which causes the heart attack. The, you know, it's sort of like that, this is the house, you know, this is the calcium that caused the plaque, that caused the, that caused the clot, that caused the heart attack. And so right. what we, so we identified that people with high calcium scores in their coronary arteries, something that can be de- determined by a simple spiral CT test, out-of-pocket cost on that, by the way, is about 150 bucks. So if you can't get your insurance to cover it, you know, and you right. and you're worried. That's what I had done a couple of years ago. Right. right. So the calcium score is important because it statistically create it tells us risk. Now, what can you mm-hmm. do? And now let's move to the aorta. So the aorta yeah. is very big, and it's never going to clot. Okay, that's mm-hmm. it's way too big. There's way too much traffic through it. The, the blood never slows down enough for a clot to occur until you're dead. So we don't worry right. about clots in the aorta. What we do worry about is because it's a pipe carrying a whole high pressure bl- sure. lot of blood, pressure it, line. it can tear. 
and it'll tear on the lining. And the calcium makes it more likely to tear because it's, le- it's more rigid. And if you tear that lining, the blood will move through and you get what's called a dissecting aortic aneurysm. And so suddenly the blood moves down a blind alley and expands behind, you know, basically pushes out behind the lining. So now the, the aorta is drastically narrowed, maybe even completely occluded, and you don't have much time to deal with that. Uh, mm-hmm. to keep the person alive. So mm-hmm. uh, the other thing that can happen is the aorta can, because it's rigid, it can become weakened, and it can actually mm-hmm. expand, and we call that an aneurysm, where it's expanded, mm-hmm. but it hasn't dissected. So calcium in the aorta makes you worry about calcium in the coronaries, and it also has its own set of issues with respect to creating a risk for either kind of aneurysm that I've just discussed. Mm-hmm. Now, what can you do about this? Well, we know that reducing inflammation, whether you use high-dose fish oil and an anti-inflammatory diet or you use a statin, which is a, a good anti-inflammatory. Statins are primarily having their preventative effect, in my opinion, not because they reduce cholesterol, but because they're anti-inflammatory. And so that anti-inflammatory uh, effect is good and does reduce your risk. So, you know, I'll... Uh, I'll uh, gratitude to that. You can also start taking vitamin K2, which at doses, you take something called MK7, which is a subfragment of vitamin K2, and mm-hmm. it will at least redirect calcium away from further formation in the coronaries. And the calcium that comes into your body is less likely to go to the, to the arteries and more likely to go to the bone. So whenever, mm-hmm. particularly with men, Whenever I put them on calcium, I'm also putting them on K2. Research has shown that people who just take calcium alone have an increased risk of heart attack, and that's probably because some of that calcium is not going to their bone. It's going mm-hmm. to their artery, and, and, we, and that is no bueno. So your move, since what's your coronary calcium score, by the way? Is it above 100? I, I believe it was, the, it, I believe it was, and I can't remember exactly, and I knew you were going to ask me that. But That's all right. The, uh, but one you, thing that the, yeah. the person, my doctor said, uh, was you're looking at a possible heart attack or an event of some kind because of this number in the next three years. And that was a shocker for me because I have been, I otherwise am in pretty good health. And so I'm like going, am I just a walking time bomb? And I got to do Well, that's kind of a really toxic way to put it. Um, Just saying. (laughs) Uh, You don't, you know, the the, the Hippocratic Oath, you know, first do no harm. That includes, you know, don't manipulate your patient emotionally. Well, I I, I overemphasize. They said I could, you know, statistically, that's the way those numbers would present. And so. Yeah. Well, basically, I would have to have your exact score, and then I'd have to look up the tables. I think that's a, that's a little bit, how shall I put this? You're not a statistic. You're a single individual. Yeah. And so yeah. let's suppose that it increased, give you, for instance, suppose having your coronary calcium score, whatever it is, increased mm-hmm. your risk of an event in the next five years by 300%. That would be threefold, right? right? So that would yeah. mean under some circumstances, that your risk is 1% and it goes to 3%, which is no big deal, Mm -hmm. right? 
if the risk is already 10%, it goes to 30%, that's a big deal. So you really, really have to be careful with like, what statistics are they using? I hear this all the time on, yeah. on TV, and it's wrong. It's gamed. Yeah. And that's that yeah. one in three people will get shingles. That's, yeah, that, you know, you. no, no, no. <laughs> one in three people who live to be the age of 85 will have shingles in their lifetime. But many of us are not lucky enough to get to 85. And by the time you're 85, you have a very high risk of shingles. So right. it's a very misleading statistic. And yes. they're very good at that. And, and I'm, the doctor can even be taken in by this right. because everybody right. wants everybody on a statin. And to a certain extent, that it, it, you have to actually understand statistics, and they don't teach that in medical school at all. I just want to say, they don't teach you to read a study, and they don't teach you science, and they didn't, you, they didn't 30 years ago when I was there, and I'm sure they don't do it now because they're too busy teaching you protocols written by, I'm sorry, I'm going to get a little rant here, but it's written by people who are paid by industry to write protocols and have a conflict of interest. Well, I listen to you because you give it to me straight. So yeah. Love it. Well, yeah. okay, so if you want to get your numbers and maybe call back next week, I can give you more firm advice. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, right now I've got another caller on the line, so I'm going to see if they're still there, and I'll thank, bid you a thank fond you farewell. Thank so you for what you do, and you're terrific. Well, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, do we have Jackie on the line? Yes, hi, Dr. Don. Hi, Thanks Jackie. Hi. hi, interesting question. But I was patient, so um, um, are you ready? I am already. One um, is sleep deprivation. Um, been going on for twenty three months. Um, I have a little one, so I was just curious if there's any long term effects that I, as a mother, should you know worry about. As we know that you know sleep is so important for all these you know hormone balance and right. long term effects. You know, so I'm just like a little bit you know like it's been now. 23 months, I get like three hours, uh, you know, at a time. And um, anyway, that was my first question. If you can give me maybe some calm or some some feedback on this. Okay. Um, so first of all, I will cover that question. And the it's sort of a universal problem for the mothers of young children. However, for you, it's going to be mostly a short-term effect, but there's a couple of things that... Mm-hmm would put you at great, much greater risk, and I will give you some modifications. Uh, first of all, you know, if you can possibly negotiate someone else to do some of that child care, I presume that you're on-demand breastfeeding. Uh, you could pump. Yep. You can pump and have one of those nighttime feedings be done by another caregiver. If you've got an older child or a, uh, a partner who is up for doing that, that could really make a difference. You want to try to get about at least four hours of uninterrupted if you possibly can, and five is five would be better. When you do have to get up or wake up, you don't want to let any blue light into the world because that will really interfere with your ability to fall back asleep, and you your body's going to want to fall back asleep if it possibly can. So you want orange or yellow lights on, or you want to wear orange um, goggles, so-called blue blockers, but don't get the ones that are clear. Get the ones that are actually make everything look orange because they really do block out all of the blue light. And the way you can tell is look at a, a green LED. I'm sure you've got some on your devices 
And with the goggles on, you should barely be able to see the light in the dark. It should be just like almost no light at all. And it should look very yellow. And that means that you've got a good set of blue, of blue blockers. Wear those when you, if you do, do have to get up to pee or feed the baby or change the baby or all of the things that you might be having to do. Wear those. That'll help. It's especially important if you have a strong family history of diabetes, especially if you had a little bit of high blood sugar during the pregnancy. You need to consider yourself at very high risk from that those wake-ups because it seriously interferes with your physiology. And the blue light thing is very, very big. You'll wake up essentially with insulin resistance every day that you have to, you know, get up and turn on an LED light to, you know, find the diaper or whatever. The four to five hours of uninterrupted sleep, that comes from research that's at decades old, but it does show a very strong connection between insulin resistance and sleep deprivation. And we we know Good point, that, yeah. Yeah, so what you want to try to do is, from your brain standpoint, you want your brain to think that it's night, deep, dark night, and uh, all the time that you're awake. And that, and the brain is looking for blue light. If it doesn't see blue light, it thinks it's deep, dark night. So you want to create that. It'll help reduce the insulin resistance. It'll help you get back to sleep more easily because blue light turns off melatonin. And as long as you don't develop insulin resistance, you will not have any long-term adverse effects. But meanwhile, you know, if you've had a really especially bad night, you want to be on a very low-starch, low-sugar diet that day. I mean, you don't want to eat cookies. You don't want to have breakfast cereal. You don't want to have toast. You want to have, you know, scrambled eggs and spinach or something like that, you know, vegetables and protein that day because for the whole day you're going to be more insulin resistant. And once you start to impact your your insulin receptors with insulin resistance, that's reversible for a while and then it stops being reversible and it becomes a self-perpetuating, gradually progressive thing. And so, you know, those are my advice for your first question. Did you have a follow-up question? Completely different one, thank you. Um, about mononucleosis okay. infection as a young teenager, just long term, you know, and I think it just came out of the blood test. Oh, you had that. And um, I was just wondering if there's such thing as like fatigue and, and these types of things, if it's not, you know, it, it wasn't like treated or anything. So is there something um, that okay. you know of? Okay, so. Uh Big topic, but I'll try to I'll try to deliver it to you in um, a coherent and concise fashion. This is a viral infection that almost everybody gets, and it it primarily infects the monocytes, which are part of your white blood cell immunity system. And most people recover after three to four months. Some individuals have persistence. And these individuals have a kind of chronic elevation of their immune system. We are seeing that with long COVID in a certain subgroup of people with long COVID. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the different subgroups of long COVID that are emerging as we study this phenomenon. We see this also in people with quote-unquote chronic Lyme, which isn't really... Lyme lit the match, but the immune system is keeping the fire going. And so... 
Uh, you see this also in people with other types of, of viral infections where they just, I'll ask them, when, when were you last well? And they'll, be, they'll say, December 18th, 20, you know, 2020, and I got really sick. And then I've never been well since. And I tested negative for COVID or, you know, and before COVID, I heard this story anyway with other viral infections. And this is a situation where the immune system got turned on. And for whatever reason, it's it's not turning itself off. And these people are using a ton of energy, fighting something that isn't there, wrestling with a ghost. So that is possibly what's happening to you. And a lot of the in the 80s, we called it the yuppie flu, and we didn't understand what the antibody tests meant. So we'd see people with elevated antibodies against uh, Epstein-Barr virus, and we'd say, "Oh, you have, you have the you have chronic EBV," and that kind of got debunked. But the chronic piece of the immune system being activated, non-specifically by various different triggers, in my opinion, that's a real thing. We do have blood markers for it now. Uh, it's a fairly narrow area of sophistication, but there are some chronic fatigue uh, clinics around. They're, you know, six months to nine months waiting list because there's a whole lot of people out there. But I think one, I, I believe that Stanford has one and UC has one. Not sure that your symptoms are severe enough that you are going to derive any benefit from going there. But there, it is, yes, it can happen. Usually it doesn't is my best short answer for you. Thank you. That was very helpful. And um, last question, do you still wear a mask? I wear a mask in the office, and I am not wearing, at the moment in Santa Cruz, we have very low case levels, and I've been boosted. And the the prob- I don't want to lose my immunity to all of the other things, because right. my entire career, I've been you know chronically exposed to people with colds, okay. people with viruses, and that's that self immunizes me, and sure. I don't yep. know it for a fact that if someone walked by and threw a few omicron molecules my way, that wouldn't actually be good <laughs> for me. I don't know that we don't know that, so if I'm around people who I suspect have this disease, I'm putting on a mask if i'm uh, however, right. when I'm in the store where I'm going to get a low exposure, you know maybe just a low level exposure, I'm probably am not really and it would depend, you know, at a game where yep. at a rock concert where we're packed, you know, shoulder to shoulder and everybody's screaming. Yeah, I'd probably put my mask on. <laughs> I'm happy that the masks are now normalized, at least in this area. So what we want to do is uh, low grade exposures are probably good for us. And uh, even, maybe even to COVID, although I don't know that to be true, so I'm not encouraging people to go and, you know, have a measles party with someone with COVID. But the other stuff, just little low-grade exposures just kind of remind your immune system, you know, oh, that's this virus, that's rhinovirus, you know, 321. Now, I remember that. I'll kick up my antibodies. I'll nudge it, wake my T-cells. That's going around. Uh, our immune systems are very adaptive, and they like to be kept on their toes and challenged at low levels. And threading the needle on that is going to be tricky. So my my sort of uh, humbly seat-of-the-pants approach is I allow myself low-grade exposures to things that I'm either vaccinated against or have reason to believe I'm semi-immune to, to keep that semi-immunity active. I agree. Makes a lot of sense. And I thank you so much for taking my call. And um, yeah, thank you for the great service. 
the well, community. Thank you. Well, thanks for calling. I love I love hearing you folks out there. It makes you know sometimes I feel like I'm in an empty room. So uh, it's nice to know that no. the room is much bigger than I can see. Uh, we appreciate you. Thank you. Love from Germany too. So. Night night ninety night. Bye bye. Bye bye. We got about five minutes. I think I can get through two really great good news stories here in that time. So um, and a jump remember I promised you lots of good news. Well, I've got two stories here. New help on the horizon for people with age-related macular degeneration. And what I love about this is these both came across my desk this week, and they are going after two different features of this disease, this macular degeneration. It's one of the major causes of blindness worldwide in people over 50. And the the worst part of it is unlike glaucoma, which affects the peripheral vision, macular degeneration affects your central vision. In other words, the part of your eye that eyeball that you read with, that you differentiate very fine visual differentiation. And that uh, AMD people experience distortions and loss of vision when looking at whatever is straight in front of them. And they're essentially stuck with getting by on peripheral vision. Try that sometime. It's, uh, it's difficult. So this is research being done at UC Santa Barbara, USC, and Caltech, and they are making progress to a a retinal stem cell patch. This uh, project's been going on for several years, since 2013, in fact. It's called the Retinal Pigment Epithelium Patch, and it consists of a monolayer of human stem cells, stem cell-derived retinal pigmented epithelium cells cultured on a thin membrane of a biologically inert material called perylene, and then they take this patch and insert it into the area of the eyeball where the cells of the retina are deteriorating. And ideally, if this implant works, the new cells should take up the functions of the old RPE cells, which is which will nourish the retinal cells, and prevent further deterioration. So in the best-case scenario, they could even restore some lost vision. Uh, They did their initial study published last year. They had 15 people. Four of the subjects demonstrated improved vision in the treated eye. Five experienced a stabilization of the deterioration. And in the remaining six, they continued to decline around the same timeline as before. So... This was interesting, but again, once you put an implant in the eyeball, you can't take it back out to check on how those cells are doing. So they didn't know whether the cells were surviving, was there shifting, was there inflammation, and they got, uh, I, I would say that they had their chance. One of the patients in the trials died, subject number 125, rest in peace, died at the age of 84, two years after receiving the implant, and she left her eyes to science. So they were able to take her eyes on autopsy and actually stain them and uh, look for their donor cells. And what they found was that the cells on the patch had not migrated. They hadn't died. They'd remained in their optimal polarized position, every sign that they were doing what they were supposed to do. And the thing to understand here is that every day, when light gets in your eyes, there's a whole cascade of events. And one of these 
is that the is that the sensors that detect the uh, photons actually wear out and they're shed, and the materials in them are recycled by the retinal pigmented epithelium, and used to make new retinal cells. If they aren't recycled, they pile up. Proteins and lipids accumulate, and they form these deposits called drusen, which are a hallmark of AMD. And it's, you know, a lot of aging is about the accumulation of gunk in our bodies, just like Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease, where the disease, one of the features of the disease is the accumulation of of misbent proteins that can't be recycled normally. The the presence of this material leads to the degeneration of the vision. The, the other thing that they found that was great was that the patch didn't trigger inflammation. There weren't any tissue reactions, no rejection, no scar tissue. And so now, phase two, they're actually going to uh, assess the effectiveness of the patch and do serial vision testing. They've also developed a cryopreservation process that will allow them to create these patches and then ship them and anywhere on the planet. And so this all by itself is cool news, but even more important, where's the other article? They've come up with a way to actually regenerate retinal cells by fusing hybrid cells. I see that we're out of time, so I'll come and bring this one back to you as our top story next week. So to be continued, because... Like I said, lots of good news here. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans. Or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Don is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Bansky. Music by John Scoville.